French pastor Bob, but his uh, they're holding each other well. Hello. Check one, two. I was just going to say, um, I just encourage you to continue just to pray for Pastor Bob. Um, I know just with various health needs, I just encourage you to lift him up in, in, pr- in um, prayer and in encourage him. That's one of the best ways we can encourage somebody is by praying for them and tell them that we, that, um, we are. And I just pray that God would continue just to um, heal his body and, and obviously this surgery, but, but even more than that, um, and the other things that he deals with, and I know many others in, uh, in the room deal with too. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you so much that we get to come today and hear about you. We get to worship you. What a privilege it is. It's what we're, what we're made for. And God, I just uh, I need, your, need your grace. I think of so many times the last few days, last weeks, that I haven't been gracious. God, to my family, to, to others, and I just, I just ask, Father, that once again you would shower me with grace and that you would shower us with grace through your word. And through the reminder of what you've done in Jesus. Father, I thank you that you are the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're the Father of glory. I ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of you today. I ask that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know what the hope of your calling is, what the riches of your glory of the inheritance in the saints is what the surpassing greatness of your power is toward us who believe. I pray that you would do that, that you would awaken us to to the truth, to see you for who you are in all of your glory and how that is epitomized in your grace. Help us to see that today. Show us, as Moses said, your glory through the scriptures. And may it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mount Everest. Mount Everest. It's located in the Himalayan region in Nepal. The highest mountain peak on earth reaching over 29,000 feet. One of the earth's most distinctive, awe-inspiring wonders of creation that, that we have. It's not surprising then that the Sharpa people who live closest to it call it and I'll probably butcher this, but Sagarmatha, which means goddess of the sky. And the shocking thing is people actually try to climb this. They try to climb this mountain. In doing so, they experience low oxygen. They subject themselves to frostbite. Some hallucinate. Some get disoriented and experience brain swelling. Others fall. Many fall and die to climb the mountain. But for some, these experiences, <laughs> the thought that they're risking their lives, the fact that they know they're going to experience some of these things anyway, the resulting view of that summit is worth it. 
In May of this year, one climber said this about standing on the peak of the mountain. It was awesome, team member O'Neill said afterward. There is a 360-degree view of the Himalaya. You could see over into Tibet, all of Nepal, and the mountains. It was amazing. Just being able to stand up there and experiencing that made the whole thing worth it. Another one of Everest's earliest climbers, when asked why he wanted to climb it, simply replied, because it is there. And so what I want to do today is I want to try to take us on a trek um, up the infinite mountains of God's glory. I want to do so because when we see God for all that he is, when we see God in his glory, we are closest to the reason why we exist. We, when we experience his wonder, that is why we were created. The Bible at the very beginning tells us that God, like Mount Everest, is simply and gloriously there. It says in the first verse, in the beginning, God. God is there. And because he's there, because we're his creatures, because we're made in his image, we should seek to know who he is through the revelation of what he's given of himself in the Bible. The journey of our lives, the trek of our lives, the, the very reason for our existence is to go further and deeper into the glory of God. One phrase that veteran mountain climbers use about mountain climbing, and I think it's apt for what we're doing today, is they say, the mountain dictates the terms, and you need to listen carefully. The mountain dictates the terms, and you need to listen carefully. And as the mountain dictates the terms to the climber, and they must listen and respond accordingly as they climb, so God dictates the terms of his glory to us, and we must listen, and respond accordingly. He's not silent with his glory. It's on display in creation every single day to every single person in every single culture that ever was without exception. It has always been there. His glory streams out from Everest. It streams out from redwood trees that we know well, starlit skies, the nose and the ears and the mouth and the lips on the face of those who sit next to us is shouting the glory of God. And even more so, glory pours from the Bible. God's special revelation. God actually speaking to us and telling us about him. And even more so than that, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God. And so we must listen because creation is pouring forth his speech, and he's spoken clearly and most beautifully in the person of Jesus. So may God give us ears to really hear and to really see his, his glory this morning. Now, what exactly is glory? I don't know if you guys have ever thought about that. What, what is glory? It's, it's easy to toss the term around. We do it all the time in Christian circles. Um, shows up in sermons like this. In one sense, it's easy to get up and talk about glory. Um, it's easy for us to flash around, do all to the glory of God, but it's hard to describe. And I think it's quite another thing to, to experience it. It's not adequate enough just to pull out a dictionary and read a definition of glory because there's something tangible. There's something tangible to glory. It communicates a feeling. 
There's a beautiful experience encapsulated in that tiny word. That doesn't mean it's not objective. It is. It's not just a subjective experience, but it's a subjective experience as the result of something objective outside of ourselves by which we experience glory. And I think that there are places we can go in our experience and just our day-to-day lives that, that uh, flesh this out for us. For instance, uh, the Olympics. The Olympics were on recently. And if you're like me, and I don't know what it is, as, as I get older, I tend to be more emotionally drawn into the Olympics um, and, and sense, for whatever reason, some glory. And I think that that experience, sometimes it can strike when the person is on the podium receiving the medal, the anthem is playing in the background, tears are flowing, and you're sitting on your couch and you get a little wincy taste of that glory. Some of you may cry. Um, others may, may not want to admit that they're experiencing glory, that there's an emotion welling up within them that they're trying to hide back. Same thing when we're watching the young swimmers. Um, and I can think of the one, I can't remember her name, um, but the one young lady, um, you know, they give the big emotional packed story with the music playing. And then, you know, she's swimming, taking the laps, stretching out her arms, and she destroys everybody behind her by like a body length or two. And in that moment, you can experience some glory. Or when we see our kids for the first time, or as we've been talking about today, grandkids, and seeing new life burst onto the world. I can remember just crying when kids were born. And at first, this moment of, I'm kind of getting tired of watching my wife go through this for several hours. Because um, I can't do anything. And then all of a sudden, bam, the baby comes. And instantly, I just start crying. And that's glory. When we're driving down Highway 101, and we're just alone, it's quiet. We're just listening to the hum of our car. And we look to the west and purple hues, deep red, sun going down into the ocean. We ignore it a lot, but sometimes we don't. And glory hits us. Um, being in the Trinity Alps, I can remember looking up and, and laying down in my sleeping bag after a really long hike, being exhausted, and all you see is stars. That's all you see everywhere, starlit sky, just the sky smattered with light, and you experience glory, something far bigger than yourself. Sound of the crowd when you're a kid, or maybe later, after you um, hit a home run, you know, or kick a goal, or run track, and... People are clapping and yelling and screaming and something within you. This is glory. There's, there's, there's some amount of glory that I'm experiencing here. And so all these, all these things elicit um, glory. But they're meant, they're meant to point us to the greatest glory in the universe, what we were made for, the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? There's a little bit of, maybe a little bit of a taste of what glory is. In our experience, this is obviously even harder to describe, and it's obviously indescribable. Um, It's beyond us. It's impossible to capture in words because we're talking about God. So it's going to be indescribable. But we can get a piece of it by looking at the words. The Hebrew word for glory has the idea of weightiness behind it. Weightiness. The idea is that God makes a massive impact just by being who he is. Ezekiel in Ezekiel 43 experienced this impact when he saw the glory of the Lord filled the temple and he fell down on his face. Weightiness, glory, 
God's impact. The Greek meaning behind the term refers to the reflection of one's own being, the sum total of all of one's attributes. So God's glory is the manifest brilliance of who he is. It's his presence, his person, all that he is in his glorious attributes and his character gone public for all to see. So when we see God doing what he does, when we see God doing what he does in saving, when we see God doing what he does in in history, judging, forgiving, sanctifying, creating, we're seeing his glory made known to us. So my main point today is that God is glorious, that within God are eternal and unscalable mountains of glory, of which the highest peak is his grace. So to put it in a sentence, title of the message, grace is the Everest of the glory of God. And the purpose of our lives is to glorify and enjoy the God of grace. So where, where do I get this? Where do I, where do I find this? And I think in order to see it, we need to look at the glory of the grace of God in general, just the glory of God, and then more specifically look at grace as the glory of God. Why is the glory of God such, such a big deal? Why is it so important to us as Christians? It's important because I think the Westminster Catechism is right when it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Some of us have maybe heard that quite a bit. Maybe some of us have never heard that. Great sentence to describe the purpose um, for us. Paraphrase it. Maybe that word chief end doesn't resonate. So the goal of man, the, the highest purpose of men and women created in God's image is to glorify and enjoy God forever. Every other goal, every other dream, every other passion, every other purpose in our lives as Christians, in anything, is that purpose. It's the greatest reason for our existence. But in all honesty, it doesn't really matter what a bunch of guys wrote down in a catechism, ultimately. It's helpful, but it doesn't ultimately matter. It matters what the Bible says, and the Bible does say that. And let's look at that. First of all, the Bible tells us that you and I were created for God's glory. You and I were created for God's glory. In Genesis 1 to 3, what does it do? It tells us about the beginning. God, creator, creates the world, creates everything. And he makes his creatures the pinnacle of his creation in his very image. And that basically gives it away right there. You and I were made to image God. We were made to reflect God and his glory. But if that doesn't do it for you, God in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 5 to 7, makes it explicit, makes it explicit. This is Isaiah 43, 5 to 7. You can look at it if you want to. If you've got Bibles, if you don't, it's okay. I'll read it to you. If you want to go through the 40s of Isaiah, you'll see this all over the place. Isaiah 43, 5 to 7. Fear not, this is God speaking, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. 
Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God formed his people. God made his people. God created his people for his glory. And again, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do it all for the glory of God. That's cliche to us. It doesn't really resound like it, like it should because we've heard it so much. I don't know that it always lands on us about how intense that statement really is, um, how massive the implications are. Everything we do from school to retirement, spending, saving, working, playing, eating, sleeping, do all to the glory of God. Every inch, every inch of our day is to glorify God. Nothing is to be secular in one sense. Everything is to be sacred. Everything good that God has given is to be a sacred moment for glorifying God. That doesn't mean we become monks, we become nuns, but it means in all that we do and all that God has, has given, we seek to worship Jesus in it. We seek to enjoy every good thing that he has given for Jesus' sake. So the mission statement for our lives is to be living for the glory of God because the Bible implicitly teaches it when it says we're the image bearers of God. We are made in his image. We're made to reflect God. And it's clear because he explicitly teaches it, saying that not only were we created for his glory, but that everything that we do is supposed to be for his glory. Second of all, and maybe more surprising, why should we do all for God's glory? Because God does everything for God's glory, and we should imitate him. The Bible makes this clear, too. The Bible basically says God's biggest passion is God. So the person God gets most excited about in the universe is God. He desires to be worshipped. He desires to be praised. He desires to be adored because he's the only being in the universe worthy of worship, worthy of that praise. If he didn't, he'd be an idolater. He would be an idol worshiper because he'd be worshiping and taking delight in something else that wasn't God. So God does everything for his glory. He makes this explicit in Isaiah 42.8. Again, Isaiah 40s are full of this. Check them out. My glory I will not give to another. I will not share my glory. God glorifies himself. Why? Because no one else deserves it. Because again, we're talking about God here. The reason why we're to do everything for God's glory is because God does everything for God's glory. As you read the Bible, you see several times in the scriptures, we've actually sung some of them today, that God is out to make a name for himself. It's pretty cocky. God is out to make a name for himself. We read it all the time. We, we sing about it. When we try to make a name for ourselves, what are we trying to do? trying to get praise, we're trying to get glory, we're trying to get honor. And when God makes a name for himself, when he tries to make a name for himself and does, he gets praise, he gets glory, he gets honor. Psalm 23 says this. We see this all the time in the Psalms. It's, it's, it's all over the place. We're guided in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's Psalm 23. We often think of that as kind of a cookie-cutter psalm, real basic, um, you know, smushy, theology. Well, also in that is that he's actually leading us down paths of righteousness. Why? To glorify himself. He's doing it to make his name great. He is, 
He is leading us down righteousness, not to make us look great about our righteousness, but to say, I'm great. My righteousness is great, and I'm going to lead you down that path. Psalm 79.9 says that we are helped for the glory of God. We are helped for the glory of God's name, that we are delivered for God's name. We are forgiven for the sake of his name. These carry over quite well in what we've been looking at in Romans, some of those exact words, some of those very themes. God helps us when we're helpless. Why? For his glory. God forgives us all of our sins. Why? For his glory. God takes sinners out of bondage to sin to make them sons of righteousness for his glory. God does all that he does for the glory of his name. The whole purpose of salvation is for the glory of God. That's what he's after. That's his passion, and that's our, that's to be our passion. Last time um, when I preached, I think we saw a little bit of this. When we were looking at the doctrine of predestination in Ephesians 1, we saw that the ultimate reason of why God predestined us to salvation, why God poured out the benefits of Christ upon us was for his glory. We saw that the Bible teaches that predestination is by God's grace and for God's glory. And so I wanted to go back there a little bit and look at Ephesians 1 again to see how, how God three different times in this text, three different times makes, makes clear that the entire work of salvation, the entire work of what God is doing for humanity and predestination and redemption and forgiveness and adoption and hoping in Christ and making us God's possession is all about his glory. And I want to do so, I want us to see that by pairing up uh, the first three verses of chapter 2 and then some verses in chapter 1. So this is where we'll be for the next little portion here. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 and Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. Familiar texts. We're going to read these backwards, starting at 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Ephesians 1, starting at 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us 
the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, which works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So what do we, what do we see here? What do we see in these jaw-dropping texts? We see that we as Christians weren't even born yet and he chose us. We were slaves of sin and he redeemed us. We were dead sinners and he saves us. We were objects of wrath and sons of disobedience and he makes us adopted sons and daughters. We were hopeless and he gives us hope. We were walking under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and he snatches us up. He makes us his treasured possession. We were not deserving of love, but we were placed in the beloved son. We see that we didn't deserve one shred. We didn't deserve one shred of God's grace, and he lavishes it upon us. We deserve his wrath, and yet God gives us what we don't deserve and more than we could ever imagine. And that's why Paul later, in the, in the super familiar verse in, in chapter 2, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. The reason why he says that is because the entire work of God from predestination to glorification is the result of God's grace, of his initiative toward us, not our initiative toward him. Why? Why would God do this? Why does he do this? Is it just because he's, he's crazy in love with us? Yes, he manifestly loves us, but ultimately he's crazy about his glory. Like that's what he is after the whole refrain of the paragraph links all of these blessings, all of these things that God has done to the praise of his glory. Three different times. You almost get tired of hearing it. He says it, and then he attaches at the very end. He goes on these long sentences and then attaches to the praise of his glory at the, at the end because he's trying to make us see it. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And that's the particular phrase that personally I absolutely love. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Is there anything better to live for than to praise God's grace? Than to live for the glory of God's grace? Seeing that God is glorious is one thing. But seeing that the glorious God is a God of grace is quite Another thing, the most brilliant ray of his glory is grace. And that's the most encouraging thing in the universe. It's really clear in this whole chapter that God's grace is at the center of how salvation works. But we need to be careful not to make grace a substance. Grace isn't God's pixie dust. Grace isn't something that kind of shoots out of the divine wand over to us. It's part of his glory. 
It's part of who he is. And it's particularly tied to Jesus. The phrase in Christ and in him drench this section of scripture. We are saved by grace because we've been placed in Jesus. You don't get grace from God apart from being in Christ. That phrase is mentioned most of all in those paragraphs. So this means that there's no salvation, there's no grace outside of Christ. The glory of the grace of God is found in the Son of God. God's purpose for the world before time began was to pour out grace, to pour out the Everest of his glory in Jesus and through Jesus, who is the divine person of his glory. The Everest of the glory of God is grace because the person of the glory of God is Jesus. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So we see who God is most clearly when we look at Jesus. This is why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we shouldn't at all be surprised that the height of God's glory is his grace because of who Jesus is. John the Baptist knew this. He said, for of Jesus' fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so I want to remind us that when we think about God, the highest thing you and I should think about is the glory of his grace in Jesus. Does that shape your view of God? When you think about God, is that what you picture? Is your heart soaring with how gracious God is? It should. It should. Or have you been perched? Have you sat on some other mountain of glory? Maybe wrath. Now, we shouldn't neglect the mountain of wrath. And many do. But that's not where we're supposed to set up camp. We're supposed to trek further up into the Himalayas and climb the Everest of grace. You can't know grace without wrath. With no punishment for sin by a holy God, grace is no longer grace. But we don't have a party there. We don't feast there. We feast on the good news of his grace. There's a text that we hit just a few weeks ago that I think makes this clear. It's actually one of the most difficult texts in the Bible because it opens up all kinds of worms, predestination worms, reprobation worms. Um, But I want to look at it briefly. Romans 9, 22 to 23. Sobering verse. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So first... In that text, notice that God desires to show his wrath. God desires to show his wrath. 
That's not a comfortable thought. But remember, God is who he is, and who he is is, the, is only who he, he is. And one of the things that he is is he's pure, he's just, he's holy, he's a good judge. So when sin comes in contact with utter purity, it gets blasted to smithereens. That's what happens when evil enters absolute good. So God, he gets glory when he shows wrath because he shows he is just. He's a just judge. But secondly, there are two wonderful words in this, in this little uh, tiny words. In order. In order. God desires to show his wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So the purpose of wrath is mercy. The, pur- the purpose of mercy isn't wrath. God desires to show his wrath in order to make known how great grace is, how rich, how lavish, how huge grace is. God is enduring with patience the vessels of wrath. Those who will receive wrath because of their sin of not turning to Jesus because it's going to make mercy, it's going to make grace look that much greater. So the big crescendo of God's symphony is grace. Wrath is there playing its tune all the way through, but the spotlight is on grace. God could have, he could have nuked the world already. It could have already been done. I'm finished with this. I'm done. Pouring out my wrath. Let's finish this thing. But he endures with patience the vessels of wrath. Why? He wants to pour out more mercy. He wants to give people more mercy and grace. So, we don't perch on the mountain of wrath. We also move on to to grace, the glory of his grace. I think there's another objection that that can come to mind. I want to spend a little time there. And I think this is one of them that um, people who don't know Jesus um, definitely think about. And I think also... We don't want to admit it, but I think we think about it too. Um, Wasn't God, wasn't he less gracious? Wasn't he more upset in the Old Testament? Uh, Some some say, you know, I I don't see a whole lot of grace there. I see a lot of rules. I see a lot of people getting killed. I see holy war. I see genocide. I see a lot of difficult things in the Old Testament. Uh. The atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for, I think, like 50-something weeks in 2007, um, describes God in this way. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous, proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, and sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And that's his description of the God of the Old Testament. Most of us in here probably aren't going to describe God in that way. If we know Jesus, we're not going to describe God in that way. But I still think that there is something that we do. We kind of think God did the Old Testament thing, and he kind of had an attitude adjustment and sent Jesus, and 
He was a little cranky before Jesus came, but Jesus came and it's all good now. Now he's, now he's gracious. But that's not the way the Old Testament talks about God. That's, that, that's not the way that he talks about God at, at all. When God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, in the chapter that Brad read, he does so highlighting rather different attributes than Dawkins highlights. He reveals himself as having a different posture than some of us also would expect from the Old Testament. So I want to look at that again, Exodus 34. Exodus 34. This is a huge verse in describing the character of God, maybe close to one of the biggest. It's basically God describing himself in a nutshell, if you can say nutshell about God. Um, Moses on the mountain, stones, tablets, familiar story. And God descends. He descends in 34, 5. And he stands there with Moses. And I'm going to a different version. That's why I have two Bibles. You're probably like, man, why is this guy bringing up two Bibles? That's just, that's a big problem. This is going to go on forever. Um, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is an interesting way to say it. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So verse 5, God says that he's proclaiming his name. And verse 6 basically gives us the proclamation of his name, of who he is. And in this case, it's not I am. Before in the Old Testament, Moses, the first time he, he met God, what's your name? I am. That's my name. Later in this text, he actually says, my name is Jealous. Jealous is my name. But this kind of gives a, gives a broader picture, more of a full summary, a fuller revelation of, of God. God, and again, this is, this is God describing God. We get up and we proclaim his name. I'm getting up here trying to proclaim something. Well, it's not that important. What's important is what God proclaims about himself, and this is what God proclaims about himself. So if this text were a national park, I want to kind of give a helicopter view, and then I want to take a bus. I want to take a bus view. Um, I think the important things on the helicopter view as we're flying by looking over the whole text is to see that God is unified in who he is. God is unified in who he is. His attributes don't cancel one another out. You don't get to do that with God. He's not schizophrenic or bipolar. One day he's not mean, and the next day he's, he's nice. He's not sometimes wrathful when he's having a bad day, and then when he's having a good day, he does a bunch of graceful, graceful things. Instead, justice, not clearing the guilty, and grace coexist because he always acts in accordance with who he is which means he always does what is right. 
When he punishes sin, he's being just, which is who he is. When he forgives sin, he's being gracious, which is who he is. This is why he can say things in Exodus and earlier in Romans 9, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I harden whom I harden. God gets to do whatever he wants to do, and he only wants to do what reflects who he is. He can justly harden sinners. He can graciously forgive them because he's God, because he's I am. Part of being God is he gets to do whatever he wants to. And because he's God, he only acts in accordance with always with, with, who, he, with who he is. So Virginia Stim Owens puts this bluntly, and I would actually say offensively. But I think it communicates the feel of this text, bluntly and offensively. So here we go. Let's get this one thing straight. God can do anything he damn well pleases, including damn well. And if it pleases him to damn, then it's done. Well, God's activity is what it is. There isn't anything else. Without it, there would be no being, including human beings, presuming to judge the creator of everything that is. So God does what he wants, and he doesn't owe us a damn thing. That's basically what she is saying. And she's exactly right. I think that's communicated in the text of Scripture. He's the Lord. He's I am who I am. He is jealous. He is the God who proclaims his name because he's God. And when he wants to proclaim, he will say who he is. But there's an emphasis here. And this is, I think, the second, the second piece of this. The emphasis is not on God's swiftness to anger, but his slowness to anger. Not on God's wrath, but his grace and mercy. Not on God's hatred, and God does hate. He hates evil, but his steadfast love. God describes himself with five different phrases that capture his inclination, his propensity toward being gracious. And only one, and maybe two, you can put them together or you can take them separate, describe his, his, his just wrath. Even when he mentions the fact that he punishes sin, Right before it, almost in the same breath, he just says, I forgive sin, iniquity, transgression, I forgive. So when God chooses to, as Virginia Stimoen says, damn and do it well, he graces even better. There's an abundance, there's an exuberance behind his graciousness. I like the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased this in the message, um, which I think communicates the sense of the text well. God, God. A God of mercy and grace, endlessly patient, so much love, so deeply true, loyal in love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Still, he doesn't ignore sin. He holds sons and grandsons responsible for a father's sins to the third and even fourth generation. So now for the bus tour. The first phrase, the Lord, the Lord. One commentator um, says that this basically could be a sentence. He's basically saying Yahweh, he is Yahweh. He's basically saying what he said before, I am who I am. That's why he says it twice. He's, He's not stuttering. He's reminding Moses of who he is, and he's simply I am, and there's not anything that he can do about it. He's absolute. No one can define who he is because he's God. So he starts off by saying this, the Lord, the Lord. And then he tells a little bit more about himself and who he is. And so what comes out of God's mouth first is the combination of merciful and gracious. The word for merciful can be translated compassionate and means handing out favor instead of punishment. 
while the word that is used for gracious is actually only used to describe God. And it's mentioned later in Exodus as the reason why God hears the cry of a person in debt. So, both of these words demonstrate how God is not the God of those who can help themselves, but the compassionate, merciful, gracious God of those who can't. He comes to the aid of the debtor. He gives favor to the one who deserves punishment. Next phrase, slow to anger. Literally, this means long of anger. The same word for long is used in Ezekiel. It describes the long, gorgeous wings of an eagle. So the frequency, the frequency of God's anger is not measured by a hummingbird's wings. Tiny, small, but long, great wings of an eagle. In other words, God doesn't have a, doesn't have a short fuse. He has a long one. He's long-suffering. He's thinking about the, the hot-tempered apostle Peter. What does he say in 2 Peter 3.9? God's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's slow to anger. That's who God is. Next, abounding in steadfast love. This is big word in the Old Testament. It is hesed, steadfast love. I saw that it was used 245 times in 239 verses in the Old Testament. It's been translated many ways into the English because we can't quite really get what it means, so we keep translating it differently. It's been translated steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness, unfailing love, and sometimes just goodness. I think the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, gets across what this word means. It's a committed, never letting go, never abandoning kind of love. The reason why this said is on display so much in the Old Testament, apart from the fact that it's part of God's nature, which is clearly communicated here. But God's people were always failing. They were always turning. They were always turning to idols. They were always bailing on their side of the covenant. But God does not bail on his because of who he is. He is the God of steadfast love and mercy. He brings back his people no matter what, no matter how ugly their sin is, how wayward they are. He brings them back. Ezra, when he's preaching, And the law and such has been gone for a long time. He just rehearses what Israel has done. And says, but God is merciful. God brought us back. And then Israel did this. And God brought us back. And then Israel did this. But God is steadfast love. Some of this this very verse is used throughout Ezra's sermon to the people of Israel after a long time. Faithfulness comes next. Um, Throughout uh, the Bible, uh, faithfulness is paired with this word, is paired with steadfast love. And it's not surprising that it happens here. The word for faithfulness is the idea of stableness, permanence, keeping what has been promised, and being reliable and true to your word. And then, as if these two words weren't good enough, he already said steadfast love, that you can't describe it so big and massive and huge, never letting go kind of love. And it's also faithful, which kind of means the same thing. He says, abundant, abundant steadfast love, abundant faithfulness. So he's not doing this begrudgingly. He's not doing this unwillingly. He's rich and exuberant in his committed love. So it's a gratuitous love. In the fourth phrase of God's description of himself, he repeats himself again and says he keeps steadfast love to thousands. 
So this means that steadfast love wasn't just for one set of God's people in one time and place, but for all of God's people in every time and place. His steadfast love continues on for thousands of generations. Thousands of generations. And we're not supposed to get overly literal with that number. God's not saying, I'm going to love exactly a few thousand generations and then I'm, then I'm done. You know, when we pick up our, our daughter or our kid and we give them a hug and a kiss and we say, man, I could hug you and kiss you a thousand times. We're not saying, you hit the thousand times, you're done. No. You keep hugging over and over again. It's going to keep going. And that's what's being communicated here. His steadfast love remains firmly set on his people unto eternity. Then, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The Hebrew word for forgiveness is literally to lift, to carry, to take. And that one has been actually translated several different ways depending on the context. So the picture is God lifts, God carries, God takes sin off of his people's backs. And he carries them far away. And that's the nature of what God does for his people. He does for his people what his people cannot do for themselves. In the Old Testament, that's pictured beautifully with the scapegoat, the perfect, pure, well, yeah, the, I don't want to say perfect, the, the pure goat. And what does the priest do? The priest lays the sins of the people on the goat and sends them away into the wilderness. Sin is gone. Sin is being carried away. God is forgiving by the sacrifice of the goat and that's what God does. That's how God forgives and takes away sins. It's a part of his nature to lift, to carry, to take our sins away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And so it's not a surprise when God does that in Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, taking our sins, taking all the sins of his people, putting them on Jesus and carrying them away so that they would be remembered no more. Now then we have a turn in his attributes in the sixth phrase, which reminds us about how serious sin is. Reminds us of his holiness and justice, that sin cannot remain unpunished. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? So God's justice and his wrath make up his very name too. So it's not sentimental love. He will not bow to the court of human opinion that says in order to be loving and gracious, you can't be wrathful and punish sin. He's not going to put up with Richard Dawkins. In fact, love demands that there be wrathful jealousy. If you love your wife and she sleeps with another man and you're just yeah, you're cool with that, no problem. There's a problem. You don't love your wife. Love has a flip side A love that is fervent responds with justice, righteousness, anger. It's the same way with us, and it's even more so with God. One theologian put it this way, We dare not confuse God's love with sentimentality. As the great lover, God is also the avenging protector of the love relationship. Those who spurn or seek to destroy the holy relationship God desires to enjoy with creation, experience the divine love as protective jealousy and wrath. So the guilty deserve punishment. They deserve God's wrath. And those who don't repent will receive it, period. They will receive his wrath. He cannot acquit the guilty. He is a just judge. He's holy. But again, we see a contrast here in the way God describes himself. Isn't it interesting that 
even though he will not leave the guilty unpunished, and he makes it absolutely clear, I will punish them to the third and the fourth generation. He will keep his steadfast love to thousands of generations. So again, the weight of God's grace tips the scales. While he punishes the guilty in three or four generations, he graces, he graces thousands of generations. So here, the Everest of God's glory rises above the mountains of God's wrath. So what we have here in this great verse is God's proclamation of who he is, his glory on display. And again, we see the glory of God's grace. The reason why God created the world is to be glorified for his grace because it's who he is. The passion of God's heart is to be gloriously gracious. And therefore, we're actually at our highest purpose when we enjoy his grace. The catechism that I quoted earlier, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If glorifying God is the chief end of man, the highest purpose for which you were created, and if grace is the pinnacle of the glory of God, we glorify him best when we enjoy God's grace. And it's hard sometimes to think that glorifying God and enjoying him could be the same thing, but it is. The reason, why your glori- the reason why our glorification of God, our enjoyment of him, are not two different things is that the highest point of God's glory is his grace. We glorify God best when we enjoy grace, when we enjoy the good news that he sent his son to remove our sins. So we need to stop trying to glorify God apart from grace. We need to quit that. It doesn't work. Since God's greatest glory is his grace, we should quit to reliving the Christian life. I should quit living the Christian life morosely, ungraciously, depressed, frustrated, uptight, religious. God isn't happy with us because we've won his heart by doing a bunch of things for his glory. He's happy with us because he graced us in Christ for his glory. And this is always going to be the case. God's grace toward us doesn't rise and fall based on our religious performance. God's grace doesn't rise and fall based on how we're doing. It's not based on, if you're not a Christian, your sinful past and all that you've done before. It's based on Jesus. And this means karma doesn't run the universe. Karma doesn't run the universe. The grace of God runs the universe. The God who sent Jesus not to condemn the world, but to save it, runs the universe. You too, rock band. Some of you may know who they are. Some of you may not. Some of you would, may, would rather not know who they are. But Grace, they have a song, I think captures it well. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be your name. She travels outside of karma. She travels outside of karma. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. So grace travels outside of karma. It's not ever, it's not ever about what we have done or haven't done. It's always about what God has done in the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ. 
always what it's about. That's how we approach God. That's what we've been seeing in Romans. It's all about grace. It's all about this wonderful thing that God has done and this news that God has for the world to grace his people. That's what it is about. There are only forgiven sins. There are only forgiven sinners in heaven. Robert Farrah Capone put it this way, in heaven there are only forgiven sinners. They're no good guys. No upright, successful types who, by the dint of their own integrity, have been accepted into the great country club in the sky. They're only failures. Only those who have accepted their death and their sins and who have been raised up by the king who himself died that they may live. And better than him, God put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I made my son Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. So we can be free to live for the praise of the glory of the grace of God. We can never climb high enough on this mountain. We can never reach the peak of Everest. We never will. We will always be plumbing grace for all of eternity because by default, we can only go deeper and deeper into grace. That's, that's all we can do. And so we should enjoy it. We should enjoy the grace of God. We should speak of the grace of God. We should try to be people that are people of grace. But not, nitty, not like grit your tongue, try, but relaxing try on the sun of that particular mountain, feeling that from God, feeling that relationship with God. So praising the glory of God. God's grace is the point of our existence. And one of the ways we get to do that, one of the ways we do that is by taking communion. Is by taking communion. So if the guys would come and uh, hand, out, hand out the communion elements.
What I'm going to read is uh, what, what we read a lot out of 1 Corinthians, but it's interesting in, in Corinth um, where this verse was written. They were getting drunk off communion. They were feasting um, off of um, the food, and they weren't putting each other um, above one another, being selfish. Sometimes when we take, you know, this little tiny thing of wine and this little, or grape juice, excuse me, um, and this uh, little piece of bread, uh, we kind of miss the feast that communion is. You're not supposed to get drunk off of communion. That's not what I'm saying. But that tone of, of, of feasting, um, of what God has done for us in his body and in his blood, is a, is a whole lot more than just like what kind of this right here represents. Um, and so I was just kind of struck by that in, in him taking communion. There's a, there's, a, there's a feast to this, and because it's a feast of, of, God's, of God's grace. Um, and maybe sometime, I know some people actually do in this church, but get together, have a meal, and take communion. And that can kind of give a fuller picture of all that's happening. Um, but we get to do this, and we get to do it freely, and that's a good thing. Um, Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we just thank you so much for your grace toward us that makes up who you are and that you've let us know it in Jesus. Thank you for the sounds of, of our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, Father, thank you for the meal of the Lord's Supper. And God, may we um, celebrate your grace this week. May we do it in our own hearts. May we do it in the way we respond to our family, the way that we do our work, the way that we play. May we do it all well to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.